Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For 50 years, the U.S. Army War College's Eisenhower Series College Program, or ESCP, has been designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other policy issues between War College students and the broader public. In pursuit of dialogue, War College students in the program travel across the country, speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and other public forums. In our age of corona and social distancing, the ESCP has unfortunately had to scale back the travels of our students. Here at A Better Peace, however, we aim to pick up the slack by giving Eisenhower program participants a chance to share their expertise and insights. Today's podcast is one in a series this spring. Today's topic is diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the role of the U.S. Armed Forces in encouraging diversity in broader U.S. society. President Truman's Executive Order 9981 on July 26th, 1948, abolished discrimination, quote, on the basis of race, color, religion, or national origin, unquote, in the United States Armed Forces. In the decades since, the United States military has been both a laboratory and a shop window, displaying the success that can come through not simply reflecting, but embracing the diversity of the society it is sworn to defend. After more than seven decades, however, many questions remain about how well either the armed forces or American society as a whole have lived up to their stated values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our guests today to deal with these questions include three members of the Eisenhower Series College Program uh, and, and members of the United States Army War College Class of 2021. They are, in order... Colonel Rebecca K. Connolly, who is an Army officer with over 22 years of active service. With a bachelor's degree from Texas A&M and a law degree from Syracuse, Colonel Connolly has advised commanders on the law of war and rules of engagement in combat operations, as well as prosecuted federal cases in military courts martial. She also served as a military judge at Fort Hood from 2013 to 2016. Colonel Adisa King graduated from the United States Military Academy in 2000 as an infantry officer. He has served in mechanized airborne and air assault units in the United States and Korea and has multiple deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq, where he most recently served as a task force commander and senior advisor to Iraqi army commanders. Additionally, Colonel King served in the Senate Liaison Division within the DOD's Office of Chief of Legislative Liaison in Washington, D.C., and as the military aide to the Secretary of the Army. And third, Lieutenant Colonel Aixa R. Donez enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1994. She graduated from the University of Illinois at Chicago in 2001 with a degree in criminal justice and was commissioned as an officer in the United States Marine Corps in 2002. She also holds an MA in National Security and Strategic Studies from the Naval War College and an MS in International Relations from Troy University. 
Lieutenant Colonel Donez has experience in signals intelligence and human resources and has been a part of humanitarian efforts in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and combat operations in Iraq. She has been selected to assume command of 4th Recruit Training Station Battalion, Paris Island, South Carolina, in July 2021. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. Hey, how you Thank doing? You. Thank you. Thank so you very much. It's great to have the three of you here. I'd like to each give you a chance to summarize the work that you're doing or plan to do with the Eisenhower program, the speech that you would have given if we were in a uh, in a public forum, in, a, in short form now, as part of our conversation starter. So I'm going to start with you, um, Rebecca Con- Connolly. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Um, and good afternoon to my ESCP colleagues as well. I know Adisa and Aixa and I are really excited about this opportunity. You know, during this year, I enjoyed the dialogue I had with many of our audiences about the importance and value of equal justice under the law. Our national security strategy proffers that equal justice under the law and the dignity of every human life are central to who we are as a people. But, you know, especially during this year, you know, I was contemplating how can we champion these values to advance American influence if we do not espouse them at home? For example, A recent government report to Congress showed that Black and Hispanic service members were twice as likely to be investigated and tried in military courts martial than their white counterparts. So until the promise of equality, you know, the promise that was made by our forefathers, until that promise is fully realized, we must remain committed to change. And that's what I talked to um, the students and the various audiences and think tanks about this year. And it was a really interesting and almost encouraging dialogue. So thank you for this opportunity. You bet. Thank you, Rebecca. Adisa King. Whoa, man. I tell you, I tell you this. Listen, when we talk about DEI, I know several things come to people's mind. They're like, oh, no, here we go again. What are we doing? And, and, and I understand it because I was one of those. I was. Um, but when I when you sit down and take a step back and look at the research and, and look at some of the things, what I have found uh, through my research and through my discussions and my experiences is sometimes there's a rush to failure. And that's what I spoke to uh, several of the uh, audiences. Sometimes we have to stop rushing to failure with the multiple initiatives that we have um, when it comes to DEI. And this is saying that, you know, I'll talk, talk about it later, but Christine Cox is a phenomenal uh, innovator and, and, and a leader uh, that I've come to understand and, and understand her, her concepts. But also what she talks about is the vicious cycle. Uh, and it's really sometimes trying to solve the wrong problem. And you just keep adding initiatives and people get frustrated and you go through the same cycle again. And I've seen it. I've experienced it. Uh, and that's where I think sometimes we probably need to stop and really truly understand what the core problem is. And some of the recommendations that I come up that I came up with was uh, first, you know, using the, the so OODA loop. I'm sure when people hear OODA loop, they're like, oh God, here we go again. And, and But when you really dive down into it, sometimes we have to really slow down and, and really orient on what, what is the true core problem and really look at how do we observe what's going on? How do we decide? And then how do we act and understand it's not linear. And that's the unfortunate part that we all think it's like you do A, B, C, and you get to diversity and boom, we're done. No, it is a continuous process uh, that goes on. So again, the whole point of my conversation 
was we need to start the dialogue, get you know understand our biases, and and get down to the nitty gritty of of how we can uh, engage in this whole process. So, thank you, Adisa, and uh, now uh, Aixa Donis, please. So good afternoon, Ron, and to my colleagues as well. So my area of research in the diversity topic was, and the title of the speech that I would have given is the female general officer chasm. And it was not only meant to point out a lack of distribution when it comes to female general and flag officers within the armed forces, but it more so centered on the chasm of diversity within those that are female and uh, general flag officers within the armed forces. So if you look at that group, you will notice that there is very many, over 90% of them, that are just white females. So we talk about there being a race concern or issue within our senior and strategic leadership billets. Um, as a whole within the armed forces. And much of that argument centers around their specific military occupational specialties where they were groomed from being in the combat arms. Well, that argument does not necessarily hold true when it comes to the female population, because combat arms was not even a consideration for that population until 2013. So you're talking about maybe there is something to the fact of we need to ensure that we put a little bit more research, a little more thought um, in the race aspect of the representation within our armed forces, because even within our minority groups, there seems to be a race disparity. And I'm open to the questions. Great. So uh, all of these are, of course, big and interesting topics, and we only have a little bit of time, but uh, but I hope we we can touch on all of them. Aixa, I hope you don't mind. I want to start with a question to you. Because reading your bio, um, of the three participants today, you are the only one who has experience as both an enlisted person and an officer. And I am curious how you have, you know, because you you are you you are a uh, a woman, a uh, member of a minority group, and you've been both an officer and an enlisted person. And how would you describe the differential experience as an enlisted person as an, and as an officer um, in the way in the way you felt the Marine Corps uh, treated you, in the way the way the way you feel like how how the um, the about your place within the armed forces? So a great question, and it's an interesting question that I can give two almost two different responses to, okay. depending if I look at it from the lens as an enlisted person or the lens as an officer. So I'm going to provide both very short, you know, very condensed. Sure. As an enlisted Marine, I think the the challenge that I felt was supposedly um, most challenging for me or that others told me would be more challenging was the fact that I was a female. In the enlisted ranks, it, it, it has been. When I came in in 94 till now, it has always been very diverse. I have never felt as if my background um, in being Hispanic or shared friendships you know, from others in different races was an issue. I thought that they were very prominent, a huge melting pot in the enlisted ranks. So it was being a female that people thought, oh, you came in in 94. We were about 5% women in the United States Marine Corps back then. And they were like, you're going to have challenges. And to be honest with you, 
maybe I'm one of the few, but I have never had any issues in being a female within the enlisted ranks nor in the officer ranks. Now, the officer side of the house, interestingly enough, diversity became an issue because I started to realize, hmm, I am one of a few minorities when it came to my background in being Hispanic, as well as gender and being a female. So I never had any challenges in that I wasn't ever treated any differently um, as a female Marine officer. However, I just noticed how I ended up being more unique in that environment. I was significantly surrounded by more white men in that capacity. So I think it was just a matter of it opened my eyes to the fact that maybe there is a concern or a challenge in the aspect of minority and gender relations within the officer community that I did not perceive prior to attaining my commission while I was enlisted. I just, I never felt as if I was the minority when I was in the enlisted ranks. I definitely felt I was in the minority when I went and transitioned into the commissioned ranks. I can imagine. Uh, just out of curiosity, did you do your initial uh, a basic course in your training at Paris Island? So my <laughs> enlisted entry level was at Paris Island, mm -hmm. but me the officer entry level training is in Quantico, Quantico Virginia, Virginia at Officer Candidate School. Um, and how do you feel about now being one of the people in charge of dealing with enlisted folks at Paris Island? So interestingly enough, as a captain and as a major, I was stationed down at Paris Island. Mm -hmm. So I've had that opportunity. I think what makes this so much more special now is the fact that I'm going to be the battalion commander of a unit that I came into the Marine Corps for in 1994 and now get to physically take command of. I think that is the surreal portion of, of this opportunity. And I'm very humbled by it. And it feels great, right? Yeah. Because it's an accomplishment. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great for the Marine Corps too. It's a, that's fantastic all the way around. Yes. Well, thanks. Well, Rebecca, this, this then gets me uh, back to you. Something we talked about in the, in the pre recording discussion about, we talk about, uh, differential treatment within army or military justice, um, the problems of racial disparities. Um, but also, I'm curious we, we, if if we if we build on what uh, Aixa told us about how the in some ways the enlisted ranks are more diverse than the officer corps. This may not this may not be as true in the army as is in the Marine Corps, but it is still it is still partially true at least. Um, do you see a connection between the differential treatment between? Uh, ethnic minority groups within the military and potential differential treatment between officers and enlisted people in military justice? You know, that's a, that's an inter interesting question about the connection mm -hmm. because in the research that I did, whether it was for my SRP, my uh, strategy research project, or this, um, this speech or this, the readings that we do throughout the year, there were a lot of connections people were trying to make, whether they were, um, whether they were law enforcement individuals, whether they were uh, judicial uh, individuals, whether they were congressional individuals, trying to make a connection of what is causing the disparities. So um, 
and the that's that's the problem. And similar to what um, Adisa was saying is that we have to find out what the root causes were. So to answer your question, it's no, there is not necessarily an obvious connection between the enlisted ranks and the disparity in military justice. What the research was finding is that all the services, uh, Navy, Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, uh, no one could identify the root causes of the disparities in the military justice system, whether they were from unlawful discrimination or whether they were an actual representation of the criminality that was occurring in the service. So in the um, in the end, what that report was um, was advocating for to the services that they needed to go back, the services needed to go back and really look into what is causing the disparities. What are the root causes? That's what I found to be most interesting in the research. Sure. Well, this is good because it, it allows us then to bring in Adisa here then as well. If we talk about, you know, what are the, what's the, what are the real questions? <laughs> what are the root causes we should get at? Um, I, uh, embrace the idea that we have to make sure that we're asking the right questions. So um, if you say we've, we've been chasing down a lot of the wrong problems, so what's the real problem? What I look at is, well, a lot of the leadership, okay? I'll break mm -hmm. it down in three parts. Sure. Leadership, they get it. And I say leadership, our senior leaders, because of, of what Congress requires us to do. Uh, and plus the, the incentive, our values of having a diverse Army, a device, a diverse force that represents the United States, and the United States is very diverse, and this is why that is important. A lot of the younger, uh, older uh, senior leaders understand that. That's one we get it. What happens as it goes down into that day-to-day -day actions? The second, not so much, because you got to understand society, what's going on in society, what's going on in in certain neighborhoods. And then, of course, when you get into the military, what goes on in that culture? And then you look at uh, what goes on into different schools and campuses. It is very, very different and, and is a very dynamic because one example is I went to the University of Alabama, um, Birmingham, and we went to their ROTC program. And when I look at the facilities, when I look what's going on, I look at the school again, it's a historically black college. And I was like, wow. This is not this is not what I saw when I was at West Point. The next day we went to the University of Louisville and it was like facilities are like top notch. Again, the environment was there. But again, based off the school or where University of Louisville was, the money that comes in, the way that people are involved, it is very different. Now, that's just a small part of it. That doesn't mean the kids are, you know, the, the young people are, are one is better than the other. But some of the facilities and the disparities, it was a big deal. The second part, the third part is this. We really haven't dove into, I believe, is not only the communities outside, institutionally how we looked at and how we're viewing that when people come up. And again, some of the old knowledge of, hey, this happened back in Vietnam that a lot of the black communities don't really trust the government. Well, guess what? I met a officer today. Yes, yesterday, one of my mentors who was a recruiter in 1976 in the sub in, in, in the urban areas, in the ghettos. OK, and he was in there and he said that whole attitude of of not distrusting the government, at least from his perspective, it was not there. Right. It was not there. They they saw the army 
as something, hey, even though it was going to all-volunteer army, they saw the military as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That was a very different narrative than what we hear today. Right. So th- those are one of the things I, I, I looked at as far as the dynamics of going on, figuring out, hey, how can we do this in a comprehensive way? And unfortunately, what happens? We'll start initiative. You start doing it. People get disappointed. Members don't see any change and say, hey, we need to do this next thing. And it mm-hmm. just keeps going over and over again. Right. Good. I want to I want to come back to that, but I also see that Aixa has her hand up and would like to uh, make a comment and jump in on this. Go right ahead, Aixa. So if I understand your, your question, it's like, mm-hmm. what's the root cause of this disparity in general? Yeah. Um, when it comes to, you know, the, the minority and gender gaps or whatever is encompassed within the DEI. And I would tell you that for me, my response would immediately be that first we, we tend to focus and by the we, I, I'm, I'm talking about leadership in general, right? When I think about my particular topic, I think of Dakowitz. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people are more focused on quantity vice opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think what's first and foremost important is that we need to focus on opportunity. Mm-hmm. Does the opportunity exist? And as of 2013, when it comes to a gender side of the house, opportunity exists for women, no matter what, right? Nothing right. is closed to women now. And same on the, you know, minority racial side of the house, nothing should be closed to mm-hmm. anyone. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity exists. So what we need to do now is invest in that opportunity. And I think that goes to Adisa's point. If you have a great program and you've gotten answers within this great program, why are we not then investing on these solutions that we've come up with? Why do we continue a cycle of what can we do better? What can we do better? Let's invest and we will grow the quantity based on the investment. But don't just focus on the number because then you're losing sight of the opportunity and the quality of what we put in. For sure. That's good. So um, when you mentioned Dakowitz, to what were you referring so that our readers can follow up on that? So it is the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Service. Yes. Yeah. Well, see, and this I think is is an important thing, right, is to uh, create the opportunities um, and then to see how they are used. And this is something I see. Rebecca, you have your uh, uh, you have your hand up. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Go right ahead. Well, I really enjoyed how uh, Aixa put that when she was talking about quantity versus opportunity, Mm -hmm. because I believe that's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. opportunity would be the inclusion piece. It's not just enough to be on the team. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting on the bench, it's to be putting to be put in the game when it counts. Thanks to Chuck Allen, my great professor and faculty advisor. Shout he gave us that, that. Yes. But that's what inclusion is. And mm-hmm. I think that's what Aixa was exactly talking about is the opportunity right. uh, that builds that inclusive culture. So that's, uh, thank you for that. You bet. Aixa. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's, that, is a, that is an important aspect here, right? Is that the armed forces can offer a model for the rest of society in that they offer opportunities to all. And then it's a question of who's going to seize those opportunities and how they're going to work in them. And so Adisa, that's why I'm going to get back to you and precisely this question of 
uh, recruiters or people who are using the uh, uh, encouraging people to imagine the armed forces as an opportunity, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity for uh, perhaps training uh, that they would not get elsewhere in society. Um, I wonder, and um, I'm trying to think about how to phrase this question, so I hope you don't mind me asking you this question, Adisa, is does the, does, do the U.S. armed forces make a different pitch to different communities in the United States when it comes to encouraging them to join? Right? Are there some communities where they they hit the uh, training skills development side harder than the service to your country side, or is it something that the message is the same to everybody? I'm not sure. Yeah, just be be frank. I, I am not sure. But what mm-hmm. I would tell you, one of the things I know we we speak about is our values. Mm-hmm. Here's mm-hmm. what we value within the in the military, especially when it comes to the army. Yeah. And if you are part of that value, then, hey, we we want you on the team. Right. And matter of fact, we have a diverse opportunity for you on this team. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I love about when you get when you like uh, General Beagle, who's at the uh, at one of the training centers uh, down in South Carolina, when he bring you in and even in infantry or, or any of those benches, when you come in, it's like, OK, we're going to break you down. Mm-hmm. This is our values. This is what we're about. And this is where you begin to see that young people begin to own up to, hey, this is what I can do. Mm-hmm. And here's what I can bring. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, Hispanic, gay, straight. I don't care. Right. What can you bring to the team? And that's what I think the values that that we when we do when we make those pitches. Yeah. And now there's tweaks in there too. There's there's a lot of tweaks because in certain societies, certain communities, they value this opportunity. Mm-hmm. So I think recruiters look at how they communicate that. Also mm-hmm. sometimes there, there's 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 people who can carry the message, right? Right. And some will resonate more with others, whether you may be a black, maybe you be a female, maybe you be white, maybe you be whatever. And that's the dynamic I think that that goes into, hey, how do we recruit more people of, of a diverse and quality that can come in and contribute? Adisa, do you remember the moment you decided you wanted to, to join the army? Of course, <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> Listen, first of all, my, you know, first of all, we played army, uh, all the time, uh, being from Mississippi, you go out mm-hmm. into the woods. Uh, my brother, he was ramp bro. You know, <laughs> we were the ones always chasing him. Those type of deals. I mean, and, and again, right. it was in the country. It was that hardworking. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we did it. But the key part is, um, a couple of things is when he had opportunities to go to SC, you know, SEC schools to play football and do this, but he decided he wanted to go to West Point and okay. And, you know, West Point plus be able to play football, more importantly, plus be able to contribute and serve because that's what our family's about. I saw that, but then he came back. Here's what tipped the scale for me. I'm a sophomore in high school. He's starting, you know, finishing up this about his first year at the preparatory school at West Point. Mm-hmm. He comes back. He has money in his pocket. He has brand new clothes. <laughs> And he's talking about that he is, you know, getting academics here. He's playing football and he does the military stuff. And more importantly, I had to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to my mom and daddy always anyway. So I'm like, okay. You were ready. I can do that. You know, again, because I thought I was ready. Because, again, education, number one, I had a chance to do something I love, play football. And then I had opportunity to serve in some kind of fashion, form of fashion. I was like, hey, I, I like the woods anyway. I'm good with that. 
physical activity. Those things were, uh, <laughs> that's where I was like, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> so you, did you and your that's brother both enjoy. graduate from the academy then? Uh, he did not graduate. Um, uh, but I went and then my youngest sister, uh, Marguerite King, she, she went to the academy as well. She played uh, basketball. That's impressive. So Aixa, over to you, the question of, you know, when did you know you wanted to be a Marine? Wow. I do not have a fascinating story like Mr. Adisa did. Mine is so underwhelming. I can't even tell you how underwhelming it is, but it makes me slightly embarrassed. So I honestly only went to the military and to the Marine Corps specifically for two reasons. First and foremost, money for college. Secondly, because it was the toughest service. Ooh. And honestly, that is about as, as black and white as mm -hmm. it gets. And but the beautiful part of the story where it does become a little bit more interesting is that I fell in love with the institution. Mm -hmm. I, I came in to just do my time, get money for college and carry on because that's what my mom wanted me to do. And that's what I better have done. Mm -hmm. But I fell in love with it. No, no kidding. So that's my love story. And to this day, almost 27 years later, I'm still married to the Marine Corps. That is but impressive. I would like if, <laughs> but I would like to add, if at all possible, you asked the question about does the armed services market yeah. to a particular minority group. Please. I did. Uh, I was a recruiting station commander for three years. So I know specifically from the Marine Corps side, but I have had a little bit of conversations and discussions with the other services. So as a whole, we do not market specifically in the sense of what we offer, right? The benefits of what we offer is common to all. Where the marketing becomes specific is in the visual. So you're talking about posters, videos, commercials. So the visual marketing becomes very specific to minorities because if you don't see opportunity as a minority, right? If, if all the posters and all the commercials and all the videos that you see of the armed services only has, you know, one type of person and we'll use the white community, then as a minority person or as a woman, then I'm not going to go want to join that organization, right? But that's where you will mostly see targeted type of marketing. But when it comes to benefits and opportunities, that's the same for everybody. Gotcha. That's great. And Rebecca, to you, the this this question of you know pursuing a career, a legal career within the army. Um, did you? Uh, how have you felt navigating your particular role as a as a woman, army officer, lawyer? Um, uh, have how has the army? Uh, shaped your experiences? Yes, very interesting. Uh, when I first joined uh, the Army, so we, we join, I'm a direct commissionee, joining mm -hmm. straight from law school after uh, graduating from law school, passing the bar, joining. And then I found myself sitting in all of these meetings as a lawyer, having to, to be a lawyer to advise on certain aspects, specifically in a deployed setting. And I found myself sitting in all the meetings uh, with just all male. Mm -hmm. all male, all the time. And it struck me at first, I was proud to be there. Um, and not many, uh, many that looked like me, but then it started to bother me. It should have bothered me earlier, but maybe in my junior years, I was just so excited to be in the uh, army and love to serve that I was just appreciative of all the um, opportunities that I had. But um, so that's, that was unique about my experience, not just as a lawyer, but as a lawyer in the army in a very, you know, male dominated uh, field and force but mm -hmm. the the jack Corps, we have we have um we're still working on our diversity um and our inclusion uh 
aspects, um, but um, it is a very good representation of of the um, what's in the what's in the civilian sector as well in the in the legal field. Right. Well, and you know, this is uh, unfortunately we're just about out of time here. But I would say that for each of you, right, the ex- your your experiences in the army offer in, in the armed forces. Sorry, Aixa, uh please don't. Uh, I know I know what I just did, and I sh- I won't do it again. That's right. Your experiences in both the Army and the Marine Corps um, have been an example of the possibilities that are open to people of talent, to people of ability, to people of ambition. Um, and uh, I hope that your examples uh, and your success can lead to uh, lead others to see the possibilities for diversity, equity, inclusion in the armed forces. But I'm afraid we're going to have to we're going to have to end it there. But thank you, Adisa King, Rebecca Connolly, and Aixa Donis for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank, thank you, Ron, you. for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you for having us. You bet. And, and thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Um, please subscribe to A Better Peace if you have not already, and of course you should. And after you subscribe to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast on the podcatcher of your choice because that is how other people can find us as well. We're always interested in expanding this community for these conversations. And we look forward to welcoming you all to future conversations. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.